This is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Let's first talk about um, why we want to do this podcast and why we're calling it In Between. You want to do that? Well, you came up with the name. Uh, it's in between you and me, and we're in this general overall theme of talking about being between the no longer and the not yet, and how we are given this wondrous opportunity to really rethink all of our religious and spiritual categories in light of evolutionary cosmology. That's what I would say. Yeah. The other thing that struck me about in between was it's um, in between Sundays, right? Like a way to kind of connect with our community um, outside of Sunday and let them know that we're thinking of them and, and that we want to continue to be in dialogue and in connection. And I think one of the reasons I love that phrase in between is because of that ancient Greek oracle, Diotima, when she answered Socrates' query on what is love. And she said, love or eros is in between, in between human and divine, in between human and human. It's an ever evolving spiral. That's the only place we can find love. It grows exponentially in between us than it does inside, just inside of us. Right. You know, in that regard, I'm reading a a book by Alan Watts at the moment called The Wisdom of Insecurity, which I'm going to talk a little bit about this Sunday. And in this book, Alan Watts is saying that the only place that is real is right here between the past and the future. And it's it's just such (laughs) serendipitous discovery to read this book. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so true. I think that's sort of the wisdom of Buddhism that applies to really any faith tradition is being present, being in the moment. And that's so incredibly hard to do when in every moment we're also dragging our entire history. Now, listeners to this podcast are going to discover how I am being left in the dust technologically. So (laughs) I want to know how you're going to get the word out about this podcast to people. So one of the ways we'll do it is we already have a podcast stream. That is the Ordinary Life Sunday Lectures that come out through podcasts on iTunes that you can download as well as on our website. So we have this built-in feed already. And um, we just hope that what we're sharing and what we're doing inspires people enough to also want to share it with others, people that they know, uh, post it on their social media accounts or just say, hey, you might be interested in this just to touch as many lives as possible. But we're thankful, I'm thankful that we already have a kind of built-in community that we can attach to, to some degree. And it's a way we have of trying to um, maintain connection during this in-between time when um, ordinary life is not physically meeting and uh, when we're not really clear when we'll be able to again. Yeah. It's so, I mean, this whole world of kind of connection via Zoom is so tricky. Like, it's great to sit here and see you, and it's also hard. Uh, For example, when we sit six feet apart on Sundays, not to hug you. (laughs) And that's um, this, you know, how how, how that affects our psyche so quickly. Like, I can find myself already 
kind of crossing my arms and backing up when people get too close, which is kind of the antithesis of my personality <laughs> as I experience myself. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, uh, um, you know, I, how grateful I am to you, but I am also really grateful that together we have come up with this idea of allowing Buddha and Jesus to be our guides through this pandemic time. And uh, in in preparing for what we're going to do this week, I actually went on to Amazon and just typed into the book search, Jesus and Buddha. And there were all of these books that came up, many of them by people I either know personally or have talked about for years. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Finley, Thich Nhat Hanh. You're going to be talking about Thich Nhat Hanh on, on Sunday, I know, maybe even today. Um, mm-hmm. Richard Rohr, uh, Brian McLaren. Mm-hmm. They, they, yeah. There's yeah. so many resources out there about Jesus and Buddha. And I uh, shared with you that I have this coffee table book that is... Mm-hmm. Uh, edited by uh, Marcus Borg, and I now realize that it was a gift from him, and he had inscribed in the beginning, uh, on the beginning of the book, he had written uh, to Bill, another progressive, Mm -hmm. from Marcus Borg. I did not, I didn't remember that. I've had the book Mm -hmm. for maybe 12 years, and um, yeah. That's amazing. That's a treat. That's a treat, especially now that he is dead, you know, just to find that inscription from him and have a, there's a um, a couple of philosophers who sort of think about what happens in the space after we die or what happens with our souls, I guess. And um, one postulates that there's this kind of ether where Buddha and Jesus are sitting down for coffee, right? (laughs) And and there's Marcus Borg with them, right? Going, well, finally, they're talking about all three of us together. <laughs> so I kind of, you know, I don't, I don't have a real concept of like life after death in that sense of traditional Christian wisdom. But I like the idea of um, consciousness kind of expanding in a sort of mm-hmm. way, right? And how, how can the lessons you know, in some ways we're still, we're pulling on the strings of these old masters of Buddha, of Jesus, of Marcus Borg. And someday, you know, we'll be pulling on the strings yeah. of Bill Curley. I hope that's a long time from now. At least 50 more years. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but um, I, I want to claim that um, I'm somewhat of an authority on the sayings of Jesus. I would and, say so. <laughs> yeah, uh, because I've spent years studying and teaching about it. I'm not an authority on the sayings of Buddha, mm-hmm. but I do have access to uh, a lot of people who are. And um, the, one of the things I would say is that both of these men, who are the two most remarkable religious figures in history, both of these men. Um, would not recognize Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the traditions that have grown up around them. There were all of these myths that grew up around both Jesus and Buddha. Both of them had virgin births when Buddha was born, and he could walk immediately, and every step he took, flowers sprung up. And, you know, we all know that that 
not literally something that that happened. But getting back to what they meant by their sayings and mm -hmm. why they said what they did, even where they got their mm -hmm. inspiration, because both Jesus and Buddha were trying to reform the religious traditions that they grew up in. That would be Hinduism for Buddha, right. and that would be Judaism for Jesus. And they both reflect what I call the, the, the evolution of right religion that occurred somewhere right. around 700 BC, where Jesus connected with, Jesus is in that tradition, and so is Buddha, and that's why they're very much alike. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This, you know, it's you, when you were talking, it made me think of the literary uh, uh, construct of magical realism, right? And I think in some ways we've turned people like Buddha and Jesus into this magical real idea as opposed to grounded in reality. And I, I'm also thinking, and you know, some of this we'll get to expand on on Sunday, but um, you introduced me to Sarah Grant and her saying that you love so much that then when I read the PDF, you know, I underlined three times. It wasn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it was the way. And when we talk about that way, this is true right. in life. This is true in the cosmos. This is true and everything that we interact with, we're already interconnected. And I've been thinking a lot about that right now, especially feeling really heavy about the amount of racial violence lately. And it, it's not that it's new. It's just happening so intensely and so in such a, a public and then seen way. And yet we still can't seem to sort of move past it. And even in violence, violence is still a form of connecting. And I guess like the question that I would think about when we think about what does it mean to be interconnected, to have interbeing, how do we transform that to be connected in the light rather than connected in the dark? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that both the movement that Jesus started and the movement that Buddha started had applied to them the label, the way. The uh, followers of Jesus early on were called followers of the way. And the, in the Four Noble Truths end with the Eightfold mm -hmm. Path, the way. So they shared that in common um, mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. and. Um, to be clear, this right. um, evolution of right religion that Buddha was clearly part of and the Jewish pr uh, prophetic tradition is part of was directly connected to uh, these spiritual geniuses trying to interject compassion into the world and how people related to each other. Yeah. I've got this picture I'm going to show on Sunday that somebody sent me right. that was right. taken in a Montessori school in Detroit. I got online and I found it. It's such a precious thing uh, called the Age of Innocence, where this little white girl is got sleepy in story time and leaned over and put her head in the lap of a little black boy sitting next to her. And he has his arm on her. It's just, it's just precious. And it's the photographer who took the picture labeled it the age of innocence 
Yeah. And there's a necessary exit from the age of innocence, right? Like we have to learn to see things as they are. We have to move outside of innocence. I was actually just on a Zoom cast with Project Curate and they were talking about kind of moving out of the age of innocence. And I think specifically talking around majority white churches, um, Rudy Rasmus, the pastor at St. John's downtown brought up that the black church has, has been out of the age of innocence. Like we've been operating in reality of um, disparity and inequity for a long time. And, you know, sometimes I think about my little boys, you know, that scene of a brown skinned boy's head in my lap is daily here in this household, right? This longing to protect that innocence and this also knowing that reality awaits, right? Reality Mm -hmm. is, um, reality is right there and holding both in the same hand is, feels so hard sometimes. Well, the, exiting the age of innocence to step into um, what is, mm-hmm. which is the, the heart of spiritual practice, in my opinion, um, I, I think it does not mean to overlook the fact that in growing up, people have to be taught to hate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's not part, hating is not part of our natural makeup mm-hmm. when we're little. Yeah. No, I think I may have shared this with you once that when my kiddos were in preschool, which feels like a long time ago now, um, there was a a friend that that they had that two siblings that had two moms. And one day (laughs) Caleb came home and he said, mommy, so-and-so has two mommies. And he was just like, oh, wow. And, you know, I realized in that moment that his excitement around that is normal, is the way, so to speak, that his capturing and holding on to that excitement and celebration depended upon my response as the adult. I could have responded with, you know, that's not natural, right? Or I could have responded with, isn't that lovely, you know, and tell me more. And I paused, I remember this moment really clearly, and I chose the latter, tell me more. You know, why is that exciting? And I, I think my kids have been able to hold on to that sort of that way, right? That, that all things belong. I think they'll suffer their own realization that there's going to be spaces that they operate in where they don't feel they belong, where their right to be in a place is questioned. But I hope they are, what do you want to say, harbingers of, of that sort of inclusion or love and that's I think what Jesus meant when he said we need to be like the little children to enter the kingdom of heaven and we need to have a good skill set because one of the things that is part of the eightfold path is what uh, is called right speech yes and uh, I I don't mean to sound judgmental when I say this although it is a an evaluation, most people in my experience don't know how to talk. Yeah. And they don't take that, they don't, um, they don't hit the pause button. Uh, in uh, Christian virtues, we call it patience, uh, where that you, your little boy comes home and says, hey, mom, so-and-so has two moms. And if you just stop and think about what your response is, 
then you can make a more informed decision. Yeah. Yeah. I think the pause is so critical in, um, in our response. Yeah. So, you know, for years in my own uh, teaching, I wanted to, um, and this has been true for 50 years, I wanted to find a way to teach spiritual truths without um, sounding exclusive, that you have to be part of one religion or another, mm-hmm. or uh, be part of creating it that religions are antagonistic to each other, because religions have caused more trouble in history than anything. Um and so I taught over and over that the values that we had are peace, love, and joy, peace, love, and joy, peace, love, and joy. And then I decided to add two more to that over time. And one of them is patience. Yeah. To take a, you know, just stop. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. stop. And the other is humility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, give up the arrogance that we know. Mm-hmm. 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 How do I want to say this? I was also inspired by this conversation I just listened to through Curate was two words that sort of rung out in my ears. One was um, holy anger um, and the other was porous. And the way that I kind of hear both of those things is, you know, in some ways, I think the church as a whole is lacking holy anger and porosity. And by anger, I mean, are we indignant enough about inequity that we, and the maybe by we, I mean the, the white patriarchal church, right? Um, are we angry enough about inequity to actually transform it, you know? And then porosity, I was thinking about on, on the cosmic level and for life to exist, a cell has to have a, a semi-permeable membrane right? It has to know what to let in and what to let out. It has to know in order to survive. If it's a closed system, it won't survive. Like it literally cannot differentiate. It cannot uh, recreate itself. It cannot commune. So where do you think the church sort of needs a more permeable membrane, if you will, so that we can lean into our interconnectedness, our, our interbeing. Well, my first response to that is that the church needs to teach people how to become aware. Think about this. During this uh, mm-hmm. pandemic, when mm-hmm. people have gotten sick and tired of staying in and being physically distant from one another and not being able to do the things that we were used to for for a long time, a certain segment of the population has gotten really angry. And so they've shown up in uh, capitals, like in Michigan, with uh, carrying firearms, white white people showing up, carrying firearms, essentially at one time shutting down the government to protest the shutdown and they wanted things lifted. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine we've just had this, uh, another murder right. of a black man by a police mm-hmm. person. It's on film. I mean, you can see it. Yeah, and and um, what if the black community showed up 
with firearms and masks to protest that, the reaction would be way, way different. And I think until we are permeable enough to allow that into our consciousness and say, what's wrong with this picture? We're not going to get far. Right. It's so, I just had this thought, you know, paradox is about being able to hold the both and, right? And yet there are two distinctly different images that creates a kind of paradox in our mind, right? Um, A black man dying under the knee of a white cop again. I was reminded by Josh last night that Dylan Roof, who shot into a Charleston church, a black church in Charleston, was taken to Burger King by the cops after his arrest. <laughs> Those two paradoxes. So I can't um, even fit I didn't together. know that. That's stunning. No. I, I, I didn't know yeah. that. So it, it, let's, let's get back to Jesus and Buddha a minute. You know, um, yeah. I think that yeah. the way they, one of the ways that they can guide us forward during this time is that we learn from them how to be subversive because both of them (laughs) were subversive. Both the Buddha and Jesus sought to overthrow things in in the culture where they were uh, at the time. Richard Rohr says that uh, his image of Jesus is that for six days, Jesus laid around a hammock, not doing anything. And then on the Sabbath, he got up and got busy (laughs) and started breaking all these laws. And, Eating with the wrong people, eating with the wrong hand, uh, right, not eating right. the right food. Um, it's just, he's, he's a troublemaker. Yeah, that's holy anger. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we, we think of righteousness as being sort of a bad word. Um, but I want to reframe that in terms of holy anger. And I think sometimes that anger, um, I was texting with, with Cleve, with my friend Cleve, who was with us in Ordinary Life a couple of weeks ago, just kind of going, oh, you know, hope and disgust don't even fit together. And he had a brilliantly Cleve response, which is something along the lines of, disgust doesn't require you to let go of hope, but there's a time to lean into indignation. And I, I, I think that that's sort of what holy anger is about, leaning into indignation when we are saying every, if we say everything belongs here, we have to mean it, right? Uh, and, and go back to what you were saying about paradox, holding the tension of opposites. Because yeah. in Buddha and in Jesus, you see an epitome of compassion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Both of mm-hmm. them practice compassion. Yeah. Both and 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 yet the way they went about being inclusive of everybody, right, was subversive to the system. Yeah. Yeah. And they were willing to allow that to happen. Yeah, I think we can learn something from from that sort of subversiveness that is also deeply loving, and this is where I think. Love can be really fierce. Love is not a mm-hmm. 
a, a, a schmoopy kind of wet blankety type of emotion. It can be fierce. And I think for sure, I, I'm more deeply connected to the Jesus figure than to the Buddha figure, but Jesus was fierce in his love. You know, um, I spent years um, involved with the Jesus Seminar. Since Robert Funk has died, I think the energy around that organization is kind of decreased. Mm. But um, there was great value rendered by the scholarship in the Jesus Seminar to let us know what Jesus did and didn't say. Now, the fact is, we don't have any audio recordings of what Jesus said, and I think <laughs> he didn't leave a podcast. <laughs> he didn't leave a podcast, so we really don't know. But we have some good guidelines about what Jesus said and what he didn't. The same scholarship is going on in Buddhism. I take a couple of Buddhist journals, um, the Lion's Roar and Buddha Dharma, which are two of the leading uh, Buddhist magazines published today. And there's scholarship being done in Buddhism about what Buddha didn't say. I mean, um, there are a lot of things that show up as memes on the internet and on coffee mugs and things attributed to Buddha that he likely never said. Now, I'm not a scholar in that, but it is fascinating to read these articles. Yeah. About that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, before we give too much of ourselves away for the upcoming weeks, <laughs> I, I had a question for you that actually touches on what we're about to get into, which is um, the sayings of Buddha and, and the sayings of Jesus and how they can both guide us. Um, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a couple, when we spoke with Natalie and Cleve a couple of weeks ago, you referred, I think, to Thich Nhat Hanh and saying, that we needed to learn to let go of labels, right? And, you know, so many of us are tied to our sort of essential labels. For example, um, I, for a long time, I called myself a soccer player, and then I wasn't. <laughs> for a really long time, I primarily identified as a teacher, and now I'm not, um, or not in a classroom setting the way that I was. And I think, and I've learned this in many ways sitting with you in some dark times is Holly, there's something deeper to you than what so-and-so thinks, than what so-and-so thinks, than what so-and-so thinks. And I think that's what you meant mm -hmm. when you said we need to learn to live without labels. But I also then thought, well, um, there are some that might feel like that's sort of a privilege, right? Like it's easier in this culture for a white upper middle class woman to sort of say, oh, I don't need my labels. But for, let's say, a first generation Mexican who identifies as LGBTQ, that label feels important, that identity feels important. And to um, Blacks fighting for justice right now, that quality of Blackness feels like solidarity. So can you, how would you speak to that, <laughs> I guess? Well, uh, I, I'm going to say that um, although I got it from my teacher, George, mm -hmm. many, many years ago, um, the emphasis on not having labels belongs to me. Mm. Uh, I didn't get that from Thich Nhat Hanh. That's something that I preached for decades. Don't 
buy into a label because everything changes. Mm-hmm. Now, that's different than affirming solidarity around issues of justice. Mm-hmm. So that I want to stand in solidarity with the LBGTQ plus community. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think, by the way, <clears throat> we have a lot to learn by listening to those people and the way that they have conducted themselves, their persistence, their patience in uh, standing up in the face of injustice. So uh, if somebody says, I am part of that movement, that's uh, um, a way of identifying what they are about. And um, every other label, almost every other label you can think of is going to fall away. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of what this pandemic has done to people who identified with their jobs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then also to be in reality that even though it's uh, an, a thing that shouldn't be discriminating, it actually is affecting many of us very differently. And that we've got to be in reality about that to know where to have our holy anger. <laughs> I think. Well, I think that one of the yeah. potentially good things to come out of this pandemic is that, um, as former President Barack Obama said, uh, this pandemic has pulled the curtain back. Mm-hmm. It has let us see the yeah. incredible inequities in the health system, for example. Yes. Um, yes. I, I just today. Um, Sherry and I took a supply of food to the Emergency Aid Coalition, which is connected to St. Paul's. And um, we encountered there the street people, many of them mentally ill, uh, who, if this country had an adequate equitable mental health program, we wouldn't have some of the poverty and street problems that we have. Mm -hmm. But we don't have that program primarily because it benefits the wealthy. Right. That's right. And it keeps keeps those in power in power. And this is, here we are needing to deconstruct the system that we've created. And, uh, you know, my concern about this, and you and I have talked about this before, is um, how do you say this to people in power without Mm -hmm. really offending them to the point that you can't say anything else? Now, um, Jesus and Buddha apparently didn't care about that. Yeah, <laughs> I love some of that audacity, you know, yeah. just to kind of go, we've got to say what is. We also still love you. And, you know, Buddha would, and Jesus wouldn't have said, I love you in spite of. Yeah. They would have said, I love you because of. You know, and, you mark and, it, yeah. Marcus yeah. Borg said, Jesus could have saved himself the cross being crucified if he had just figured out a way to be advisor to Pilate and gone to, <laughs> gone to you know if he could have been his religious consultant and right, gone right. to a couple of state dinners and maybe <laughs> gone to the 
Yeah. Whatever it was. Uh, yeah. And there's a place for that too, you know, working within the institution to reform it kind of, but well, I, you know, I think um, we could go on for a long time about these two fellows and they are both, and we will, we'll go on for some weeks about them. And I'm looking forward to what transpires and what comes and, out of it. And both, I always say one more thing, yeah. both of them, both, both Buddha and Jesus mm-hmm. began their creative ministry out of a, a recognition of human suffering. Yes. Yeah. And that inevitability of suffering. And yeah. I've, I've wondered often. And the holy anger they had about it. Yes. And I, I wonder too often if sort of the power structure that's kept in place is in denial of their own connection to that suffering. And I, I, I think the last thing I'd love to say is um, a James Baldwin quote. And I've been reading a lot of Baldwin lately. It's funny, I did, you know, probably 15 or 20 years ago, engage with James Baldwin a lot. And he's f***ing me again, (laughs) Um, as you like to say. But I love this quote. This is a wedding. Whether I like it or not, or whether you like it or not, we are bound together forever. We are part of each other. That's a good place to stop. Okay. Well, I will uh, see you live stream on Sunday. All right. All right. If you found us today on our podcast, In Between, an offering of ordinary life, thank you so much for joining us. You can download our podcast on iTunes or wherever you find them. And you can also find it on our website at ordinarylife.org. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you here again soon.